welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast. Today on the show, we are going to talk all things SALT. I've got expert researcher Dr. James Antonio on to take a deep dive into his new book, The Salt Fix, where he sets the tone by giving us some context, the evolutionary needs of salt. What did our hunter-gatherers truly consume? The myriad of many health benefits of this essential electrolyte sodium, which is 90% of the electrolytes in the body. He touches base on the actual dangers of low-salt diets and why today's recommendations are perhaps putting many people at risk. He discusses the impacts of low-carb dieting on salt and as well as the salt hypertension connection and how another white crystal, namely sugar, could truly be the root cause of many of these problems. He also takes a deep dive into the athletic side of things, salt and athletes, hydration, work capacity, cramps, even joint health, some really, really phenomenal stuff in this interview and in his book, as well as some interesting facts on salt and libido. So um, terrific interview here with uh, Dr. James. He also gives some great recommendations at the end of the episode and phenomenal recommendations in his book on various types of salt and their different constituents. So great stuff. Hope you enjoy the interview. Check out my notes, uh, drbubs.com forward slash podcast for my easy, simple, actionable layups, as well as the more in-depth performance hacks. Hope you enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Dr. James Nicolantonio, a cardiovascular research scientist and doctor of pharmacy at St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute in Kansas City, Missouri. A well-respected and internationally known scientist, an expert on health and nutrition, he has contributed extensively to health policy and has even testified in front of the Canadian Senate regarding the harms of added sugars. He serves as the associate editor of the British medical journal's Open Heart, a journal published in partnership with the British Cardiovascular Society. He is the author or co-author of approximately 200 publications in the medical literature. He is also on the editorial advisory board of several other medical journals, including Progress in Cardiovascular Diseases and International Journal of Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology. James, thanks so much for taking the time out today. Yeah, thanks, Mark, for having me. I appreciate it. No problem. Listen, can we uh, kick things off perhaps by telling the listeners a little bit more about how you got into cardiovascular research and the topic of salt? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, When I was first in high school, starting out wrestling and running cross country, my fitness always dramatically suffered if I didn't take salt. So I always knew salt was important to fitness. And so just inherently, the low salt advice to consciously restrict our salt intake just never made much sense to me. And so... I carry that over through as a community pharmacist. A lot of my patients were coming up to me on diuretics. Their doctors were telling them that they shouldn't be salting their foods. And they were saying, you know, Dr. D, I'm dizzy, I'm lightheaded, I want to just taste my food again. And I would tell them, I would be like, listen, you should listen to what your body's telling you when it comes to salt intake because your body drives you to consume the optimal amount of salt. So I would tell them, go back to your doctor, get your sodium levels tested, see if they're low. And a lot of times they'd come back low and the doctor would cut the diuretic and would tell them to add salt to their food. And their improvements in dizziness and orthostatic hypotension 
would dramatically improve. And it was like the quickest, easiest fix. And right then and there, I knew I was onto something. And that led me to publish. I've gone on to publish over a couple hundred papers now in the medical literature, mainly on nutrition, mostly on salt and sugar. And then I spent over two years researching the salt fix. Yeah, your fantastic new book, The Salt Fix, uh, opens with a terrific quote, which I love. I'll read here. The cure for anything is salt water, sweat, tears, or the sea. Can you speak a little bit to that evolutionary connection to salt? Yeah, no, it's a great quote, and it speaks volumes for what the book is going to cover and how important salt is and how we really are basically walking oceans, right? We carry this saltiness within us in our blood, and so really the the concentration of salt compared to other minerals in our blood is the exact same as the ocean 90 percent of the minerals in our blood is sodium and chloride and so those are the two main electrolytes in our blood and our body controls salt intake because it is an essential nutrient and because the levels in the blood determine not only the hydration of our cells but how fast our heart rate works and without salt, literally, we would perish. So that internal sea and that we carry the saltiness and that if we lose it, we're at risk of all these harms is really the essence of what my book is, making sure we're maintaining that salty sea, and replacing what we're losing throughout the day. Yeah, that's very well said. And, you know, in the book, you discuss the diets of hunter-gatherer populations, you know, from 2.6 million years ago to about 10,000. And of course, the research traditionally estimates lower salt intakes. Now, you know, is this correct or is there more to the story? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And so I kind of go back in time to the main New England Journal of Medicine paper from the fathers of the paleo diet. It was Eaton and Boyd published a paper. And really, this is where all of us think that evolutionarily we consumed a low salt diet. They estimated that on a vegetarian diet, we would only consume about 400 milligrams of sodium and even on a full meat diet we would only get about 1400 milligrams of sodium which is just over a half a teaspoon of salt the problem is is they only looked at muscle meat even though we consume the entire animal the salty blood the salty interstitial fluid the salty organs so they inappropriately basically downgraded how much salt we would get during those 2.6 million years because one deer contains 30 days worth of a normal salt diet today. Wow. And so we know that, yeah, it, it, when you put it like that, people can start to understand that from an evolutionary perspective, we probably consumed a high salt diet. And even for the last 10,000 years, the main food preservative was salt. And so we used to consume up to 10 times as much salt for the last 10,000 years or so compared to what we do to today. Now that we have a refrigerator and we don't need to lace all our food with salt to preserve it. Yeah, and I mean, that's a phenomenal insights. And, you know, if we take a step back before we dive, dive a little bit deeper here and perhaps give listeners a quick review of, you know, what, what does salt do in the body and why do we need salt? Yeah, that's a really great question. And in the book, I really wanted people to understand the benefits of salt. So let's take salt in let's just kind of break it down into what it really is. Salt is two essential micronutrients, sodium and chloride. Most people don't know that chloride is actually what makes up hydrochloric acid. So if you wanna be able to digest food, absorb nutrients from your diet, prevent bacterial overgrowth, you need to consume salt because that's the chloride, the other half of salt, 
makes up hydrochloric acid. The other half, which is sodium, has so many benefits in the body. I honestly, I, I couldn't even name them all. We'd be here sodium, for a while, right? <laughs> we would be here, yeah, we'd be here for probably an entire year. But basically, if you want to absorb water-soluble vitamins like vitamin C and biotin, you need sodium. Sodium helps keep our heart rates low. It gives us a blood volume. We demonize blood pressure, but we need a blood pressure, right? We need blood circulation, and sodium brings us good blood circulation. And a lot of people suffer from uh, dizziness and hypotension and really increases in heart rate, which is called POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. A lot of females suffer from this syndrome, where when they go from a seated to a standing position too quickly, they have an over 30 beat per minute increase in heart rate. Salt is one of your best ways to fix that situation. So salt gives us blood pressure, gives us blood circulation. It actually allows vitamin C to get into the bones in the brain. So salt has all these really important properties. It allows the heart to beat. It allows nerves to communicate with each other. Um, it allows uh, potassium to come in and out of the cell, and which also allows calcium to come in and out of the cell. And it allows glucose to come in and out of the cell. And probably almost, it also allows hydrogen to come in and out of the cell. It, in other molecules. So really, if you want anything, almost anything to go in and out of the cell in some way, sodium is an important driver of that because it drives basically the transgradient, that, that energy potential between the inside and the outside of all of our cells. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I mean, in the book, you, you, you give a thorough treatment to all the the important functions there. And it really is mind blowing when we see just how essential obviously this is. Now, where did we, you know, where do these low salt recommendations come from? How do we get to this point? Yeah, that's really the first question I wanted to answer in the salt fix was, where did we get this idea that salt, an essential mineral that our body controls its intake, we would want to consciously restrict it to what certain guidelines are telling us to as if they're smarter than our own bodies. And so really, I go through this over 100-year history of where the salt blood pressure hypothesis comes from. And it starts out in 1904 with two French scientists named Ambard and Beaujard. They gave 20 grams of salt to just six of their patients, and they saw trends in blood pressure go up. And then when they cut the salt intake, it went down. And three years later, another scientist said, well, he didn't really find those findings. So that was the beginning of the salt wars, what I like to coin that term, the salt wars. And so it started literally in the early 1900s. That's how far this goes back. But in regards to where did this get into a recommendation for all Americans, it stems from the 1977 dietary goals where we're dealing with all our nutritional whiplash from those 1977 Absolutely. dietary goals, right? They told us to eat a high carb diet. They told us to cut fat. They told us to cut salt. So that's where it comes from. And they really based those recommendations. They misrepresented what two experts at the time were trying to say. So George Manili and Harold Botterby were the two main scientists. They came out with a review paper the year before the 1977 dietary goals were published. And they were called upon as experts for uh, George McGovern's Senate Select Committee. But their paper, actually, I looked it up, downloaded it, read the whole paper. It is an excellent paper. It was just a hypothesis. And what they said was, is that only if you consume a low amount of dietary potassium and only if you are one of those minority who is genetically susceptible 
to salt's blood pressure raising effects should salt be restricted but of course those nuances did not get into the 1977 dietary goals when they told all americans to cut their salt intake yeah it's amazing how nuances seem to get lost along the way and of course in your book you talk about you know traditional diets and of course they're you know the average sodium intake of traditional diets versus these those recommendations can you touch on that yeah, what I try to go back to time and again is when you look at the longest living people in the world, the Japanese, the South Korean, even the Mediterranean cultures, which consume a high salt diet, these populations consume a very high salt diet. So even from a population level, if you look at it, why would you ever want to go and consume a low amount of salt? We don't know any populations that live very long that consume minimal amounts of salt to live. So from that perspective, if you look at those cultures that live long consuming salt, they're not consuming processed foods, which provides most of the salt. They're eating real food and salting to taste. So South Koreans eat a lot of salty kimchi and miso soup. So they're eating basically fermented vegetables and they're fermenting their vegetables in salt. And we know that Japanese eat a lot of seaweed and they eat a lot of seafood. So if you can kind of incorporate those types of foods and incorporate salt into real food, it doesn't seem to be an issue. In fact, it seems to be a longevity factor. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's sort of intuitive as you thoroughly treat in the book of being an essential nutrient, yet something that obviously low salt diets being commonly uh, prescribed by doctors and of course, blood pressure being uh, the, at the foremost for um, the primary interventions is to tell patients to reduce salt. So, you know, where does the evidence actually stand on that? And what's the trend been since the 1950s in terms of hypertension in the general public? Yeah, that's a great question, Mark. So what ended up happening is the the hypertension guidelines in the United States relied on the first meta-analysis of low salt diets and blood pressure published in 1991. So that goes to show you, we didn't even have any, any meta-analyses on blood pressure until almost 15 years after we had already demonized salt. Wow. But what they did was is that meta-analysis was 90% unrandomized, non-randomized studies. And so it showed about a 10 over 5 millimeter per mercury reduction when you cut your salt intake by a full teaspoon. The problem is, is two years later, a meta-analysis only on randomized trials showed that that benefit had been over-exaggerated by tenfold on systolic and by 50-fold on diastolic. So all we really saw was about one millimeter per mercury reduction in blood pressure when people with normal blood pressure cut their salt intake and only a 0.1 millimeter per mercury reduction in blood pressure on diastolic. So, But the problem was is the hypertension guidelines relied on the weakest evidence at the time, which overestimated, dramatically overestimated the blood pressure lowering effects of salt. So again, what I will always tell people, if you have normal blood pressure, you're talking about a one point reduction on systolic and your trade-off is about a four to five beat per minute increase in heart rate. And I will let you decide what is more harmful. And of course that, you know, virtually no benefit there and then we're of course exposing ourselves to potential uh, detrimental effects of which you discuss in the book and one of them is around you know heart rate and sort of stress on the kidneys because that's often something that doctors will say is that a high salt diet will stress the kidneys can you touch on that yeah no that was one of the most eye-opening facts when i was researching for the book was how the kidneys actually handle salt so the kidneys filter our blood obviously every day 
And so they actually filter three and a half pounds of salt every day. So when I learned that fact, I started saying, why are we fearing 2.3 grams of sodium when we're filtering like, you know, 150 grams, we're filtering three and a half pounds of salt, yet we fear, you know, eight grams of salt that we consume. It just doesn't make sense physiologically. But what the kidneys do is they filter those three and a half pounds of salt, and then they have to actively reabsorb all of that salt, which requires a tremendous amount of energy. So the kidneys actually spend 60 to 70% of their basal energy every single day, reactively reabsorbing all the salt that got filtered out when the kidneys filter blood. And so when you eat more salt, it's a relief on the kidneys. They can just let any extra pass freely and they don't have to actively reabsorb much salt. So salt is not a stress on the kidneys. It is a relief on the kidneys. Yeah, as you mentioned, that low salt diet is going to require more ATP, more energy, and thus the, the greater stress, correct? You got it. Plus, they, they constrict the arteries, and they reduce blood flow to the kidneys. And they also increase heart rate. And so you can literally – I've seen one study where patients, their heart rate increased by 25%. So imagine your heart rate beating 15 times more every minute. You can just imagine. You are just not as an efficient machine anymore. So to stay alive now, your heart has to beat 15 times more every minute. The average person will get maybe about five beats per minute more, but you can see you are now this gas guzzling SUV instead of a more efficient, let's say Honda Civic when you're on a low salt diet. Very well said. And uh, of course, as you mentioned, those 1977 guidelines, we put the fear into Salt, And of course, the other little white substance there has a strong connection to what's going on with the overall health and salt requirements, and that's sugar. Can you talk about the connection between sugar, blood pressure, diabetes? Yep. So basically, I came out with a paper in BMJ Open Heart that we blamed the wrong white crystals, right? We, we blamed salt for all the harms that really are caused by sugar. And what I try to tell people is people will say, well, when I consume salt, doc, I get edema, my, my feet swell, or my blood pressure increases. And what I tell them is, is what's probably going on is you've consumed a diet high in sugar and refined carbs. You have high insulin levels. You're over-retaining salt. So don't blame salt for what the sugar did. Cut the sugar, reduce the insulin, and stop over-retaining salt, and you probably won't have swelling or increases in blood pressure with salt. And so salt is never the primary problem. It can't be because our blood is salty. We are literally salty. So it's something, some underlying condition is causing you to not be able to tolerate a normal amount of salt. And I go in my book, some of the more common causes like high aldosterone levels, high cortisol, low potassium, low magnesium, high sugar. If you can fix all those underlying issues, 99% of the time, you don't have to worry about consuming a normal salt diet. Yeah, in your book, you, you highlight the fact that low salt increases insulin anywhere from 10 to 50%. So can you talk about how increasing salt can actually be beneficial for, for people with blood sugar dysfunction? Yeah, salt is kind of the opposite of sugar. It's like the yin and yang, those two white crystals, salt being good, sugar being bad. And so I actually have come across studies where reducing salt intake can increase fasting insulin by over 100% and wow. can increase insulin AUC, meaning if you consume, let's say, 75 grams of glucose and you look at the insulin assay, 
and you look at insulin AUC or the area under the curve, low salt diets can actually increase that area under the curve of insulin by up to 70%. And so that's one of the earliest diagnoses of prediabetes and diabetes is hyperinsulinemia via that insulin assay. And so low salt diets have basically the same effect on your body when it comes to insulin resistance as high sugar diets. And as you mentioned, I mean, yeah, the more sugar people are consuming, we're losing salt. And of course, the cycle sort of continues, right? In terms of cravings for, for uh, high sugar foods, processed carbohydrates, et cetera. Yeah. Um, what's really cool when I was researching for the book, probably in my opinion, the most interesting fact that I learned was when an animal gets depleted in salt, somehow they know to search out a salt lick and consume more salt. But how do they know to do that? And so the body, and this happens in humans as well, the body's brain will basically activate, super activate the reward system so that you crave salt. And when you get, when you consume salt and you find it in the diet, it tastes better. You get a better reward, a higher reward. Unfortunately, sugar and drugs of abuse can hijack that activated reward system when we're deficient in salt. So literally salt deficiency and low salt diets could be potentially driving sugar and drug addiction. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I had Dr. Stefan Guinea on, and of course, uh, talking about this hyperpalatability of foods, and of course, uh, with, with all the uh, processed foods and sugars around us, it's no wonder that people should be adding more salt, or just uh, it's easy to, to pick up the um, sweet foods, processed foods, snack foods, etc., and just further drive this, this dysfunction. Yeah, no, what's really cool about salt, too, because it's an essential nutrient, it's the only taste that will actually flip its receptors when you get too much. And so you have this inherent safety mechanism when it comes to over-consuming salt, where we know with sugar, the cravings for sugar only get worse the more you consume. And we know this through population intake level. We know when sugar was introduced in the 1700s in Europe, the consumption was only four pounds per person per year, but within just a couple hundred years, it went up to 150 pounds. Whereas salt, a couple hundred years ago, we consumed up to 10 times as much salt. And once we dropped uh, salt is the main preservative and we had refrigerators, the intake of salt actually went down and has remained in a very narrow range, about eight to 10 grams of salt for the last 50 to 60 years, which again shows you that our body controls salt intake, whereas dependence and addiction control sugar intake. Very well said. And of course that dovetails into the question, which is, you know, what is the ideal dose of salt? Is there an ideal dose for people? Yeah, I, I honestly don't think we necessarily have the answer. But with that being said, what we see in population studies is the patients that are at lowest risk of cardiovascular events and all-cause mortality have a 24-hour sodium in their urine of between three to 6,000 milligrams of sodium, which is one and a third teaspoon to two and two-thirds teaspoons of, sodium, uh, of salt. And so that is much more than the less than one teaspoon of salt that every single dietary guideline tells us. And are there certain people on medications that should be mindful of in terms of the amount of salt that they're taking in? Yeah, so one of the most common reasons for the elderly to have low sodium levels in the blood is they're on diuretics. So diuretics are just obviously big salt wasters. And so people should listen to their internal salt cravings because there's things like caffeine that cause massive amounts of salt loss and diuretics. And there's, you know, we do a lot of 
other things throughout the day like exercise or it might be hot out. And so we should just be listening to our salt cravings. When we're, when we're getting a craving for something salty, we should consume it because it's our body's way of telling us that we're deficient in it. That dovetails perfectly into my next question. I mean, here in clinical practice, I work a lot with uh, athletic populations, um, team sport, but also endurance athletes. And of course, sweat loss during exercise is a big question in terms of you know how much salt do folks need uh, to, to replenish that during training? Is there a, a general guideline or what are the implications there for l- lack of salt in terms of your athletic performance? That's such a great question. It's because we fear salt so much now the athletic community is just starting to realize the benefits of dosing themselves with salt prior to enduring exercise. And I cover this pretty, pretty in depth in my book. And so it's really funny because even in the 1970s, the British soccer team, when they played Mexico in Mexico for the world cup, they consumed slow releasing salt tabs. So it's been known forever that salt is good for us. And then once these dietary goals and guidelines came out, even athletes started becoming fearful of salt. But but back in the 70s, 60s, 50s, very common that you were told to consume salt prior to working out. And the reason is, is because sweating is how we thermoregulate during exercise. And we lose a tremendous amount of salt. And it's way more than what any sports drink is going to give you. So most sports drinks, like Gatorade or Powerade, have about 300 milligrams of sodium per liter and yet your sweat is about 1,200 milligrams of sodium per liter. So you're literally losing out. Your sweat is four times saltier than what you would be replacing if you're lucky enough to even be consuming something like Gatorade. Most athletes just consume tap water, not even realizing that they are yep. losing 1,200 milligrams, which is a half a teaspoon of salt per liter of sweat. Yeah, it's uh, it's incredible in terms of even athletes training at uh – um, in warmer climates where, you know, sweat rates increase, you know, the, obviously, as you know, and as you cover in your book, you know, the need for, for salt even goes up and yeah, I mean, the sports drinks and whatnot just, just simply don't cover it. Now, uh, you also touch base on the impacts of even connective tissue and joints and how salt plays such a key role there. Yeah. Um, so for overtraining syndrome where people have muscle spasms and their, their joints ache, their muscles fatigue. Most of the time, it's due to tissue depletion of salt. And so one of the reasons is because obviously salt prevents muscle cramps. We know that. But there's this transporter of in order to get acid, hydrogen out of the cell, sodium needs to go into the cell. And so you can literally build up acid in the joints and in the muscles if you don't have enough salt. And obviously that can lead to muscle fatigue as well and joint pain. So one, one topic I do cover briefly in the book is how low salt diets can potentially be increasing joint pain and pain in people with rheumatoid arthritis because they're not able to kick out the hydrogen in the cell because they don't have enough sodium to kind of match those two ions going in opposite directions, so to speak. That's fantastic. I mean, in the book, obviously, you, you cover everything from that evolutionary aspect, the whole story behind you know how we got into this low salt area and all the, the functions of salt. And of course, you come full circle and, and talk about the types of salt. Can you give us a, a general overview of, you know, you know what is table salt and, of course, some of the other salts that are commonly used, like your Celtic salt and Himalayan sea salt? Yeah, that's a great question. It's funny thinking back on it before I researched salt, how little I knew about just table salt in general. And so 
table salt is obviously getting table salt is better than getting no salt. But when I started learning that salt isn't actually supposed to be that white, that table salt is actually bleached white and that it's susceptible to a very high heat and they have anti-caking agents in table salt, like normal Morton table salt. Uh, they also put sugar in, in table salt, dextrose. And so when I started learning that, I was like, okay, well, geez, I need to really understand what are some of the healthy natural salts because table salt is just, you know, this completely processed salt. And again, I will say that getting table salt is much better than not getting enough, but you can certainly from my book get grab and I have some really good suggestions on what are some of the really good salts, but I have a table that breaks down some of the nutrients and some of the more common salts. So that Celtic salt, um, is your highest salt in magnesium. Uh, Himalayan pink salt has the highest amount of potassium and the Redmond, R-E-D-M-O-N-D, real salt is my favorite salt and it's from an ancient dried up ocean bed and so it doesn't have the pollution from modern day uh, oceans and it doesn't have the microplastics that you might find in sea salts from modern day oceans. So that's one reason why I really like Redmond real salt. But I also love it because it appears to have really good amounts of iodine. So in my table, I kind of show how you can get basically 178 micrograms of iodine per a normal salt intake if all of your salt intake comes from Redmond Real Salt. So if if your diet is kind of low on iodine, which a lot of people actually aren't getting enough iodine in their diet, then Redmond Real Salt might be a good uh, salt to you. So there's this there's a salt mixology where you can kind of mix and match the different salts depending on your diet in which some people have a diet low in magnesium and may want more of the Celtic salt. And some people have a diet that's low in iodine and may want to reach for the Redmond real salt. So I kind of give, um, po- uh, positives and negatives to some of the more common salts. And I have that really nice nutrient comparison table in the book. Yeah. I thought that was fantastic. Really blew me away. The different forms of salt and other ones that are richer in calcium and iron. So yeah, incredible, incredible, um, summary of all that information. Um, and something else that you touched on in your book, which, you know, surprised me was low salt diets and the impact on things like libido and fertility. Can you give folks an idea of what's going on there? Yeah, that is probably the most, um, almost like scary side effect of low salt and that back in the 1950s, there was a study published in the Lancet, which is one of the most prestigious medical journals. Even today, they looked at over 2000 pregnant women and what they found was is that a low salt diet doubled miscarriages. It tripled perinatal death. It also tripled premature births. It increased preeclampsia. Like the one thing that we think salt causes high blood pressure in pregnant women, it actually fixes. So they were giving these women 20 grams of salt up to 300 grams of salt, which I wouldn't recommend, but that's what they did with some of these really bad preeclamptic women, completely treated their preeclampsia. And that's because pregnancy is a low blood volume state because the, some of the blood is being shunted to the baby. And the fertility aspect, it's kind of interesting that the ancient Greeks and Romans knew this because Aphrodite, who is the goddess of love in Greek mythology is said to be born from the salty sea and basically she gets her name derived from the well-known benefits of salt on fertility and so even Aristotle knew that animals were more eager to mate they would populate more if they consumed ample amounts of salt and it's been proven in clinical studies that 
low-salt diets in men will actually increase the risk of erectile dysfunction. So there's actually really good evidence that salt improves fertility in both men and women. I mean, I think that's great news for 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 everyone, but it's a great way to increase compliance as well for your for your patients. Is because I think most people <laughs> and clients think that's an easy um, an easy motivator for most people. Now, if we shift gears a little bit here, James, you could tell us perhaps a little bit about your you know your morning routine. Are you uh, you know are you a coffee drinker? Do you get most of your work done in the morning? How does that shake out in terms of uh, you know even in your preparation for the book and just day to day? Yeah. Um, definitely a coffee drinker. And when I started learning how much salt we lose in coffee, I was actually pretty blown away. So if you, if we consume just four cups of coffee, we can lose up to an entire teaspoon of salt and we're told to eat less than that. So you can see how 50% of Americans can potentially easily be deficient in salt. If they're only consuming a teaspoon yet they're consuming four cups of coffee in a day, cause it's basically wiping that completely out. So what I like to do is I add a little bit of mineral salt to my coffee That'll actually cut some of the bitterness out, and I don't have to use as much heavy cream, so that reduces my fat bombs in the morning. Nice. So I normally, yeah, that's that's a. Honestly, when I was going low carb, that was one of my downfalls. Was was I was doing too many fat bombs, and so I started adding salt, and that started kind of allowing me to use less cream in my coffee. Terrific. So I'll have. Yeah, so I'll have about three cups of coffee in the morning. I'll have three pastured eggs. I'll put a good amount of Redmond Real Salt on there, probably maybe a fourth of a teaspoon with some pepper. Might have a piece of Ezekiel bread dipped in olive oil with a little bit of salt, sea salt. And then what I'll do for lunch, normally I have um, a, like a Chipotle bowl. So I'll have beans, tons of veggies like uh, peppers and onions, um, corn, um, I'll have also pork and chicken and um, uh, the salsa. I'll grab that as well. And so, and then for dinner, what I normally do is I'll cook just some like uh, free range pork chops. I'll salt both sides really nice. And and honestly, salt just adds a lot more than flavor to the to your food. It adds moisture because it when you cook it, when you cook like a pork chop that's been salted, it, it provides this crust and traps in the moisture. So your, your meat is so much more succulent. And what I'll do then is once the pork chops are fully cooked, I'll kind of elevate the plate a little bit and I'll let those salty juices just kind of ooze down, creating like this salty broth. And I'll just put a ton of spinach in that salty broth. So I use salt to eat healthy, bitter foods, high in magnesium and potassium that I never would have consumed without the salt. And I will t- any parent will tell you, your kids will not eat vegetables or nuts or seeds without salt. It's our gateway to eating healthy. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I mean, it's you're making me hungry just listening to your description <laughs> there. It's uh, but like you said, I mean, this is the secret of most chefs, obviously using salt and using the the liquids and juices of all the meats to help uh, season everything and, and improve the taste. So it's such a such a good insight there. Now, I want to respect your time, uh, James. Here, so last question for you, kind of a thirty thousand foot view here, you know. Why do you do what you do? Why did you get into this line of work and, and with even the book? Yeah, honestly, I've always been very inquisitive, but it really comes from I just want to help people out. And it was it was in the pharmacy. It was just started out as a pharmacist in the community. And I really understood the power of information when I started researching about the symptoms of sleep apnea. And so one of my patients had just suffered a stroke. She was a single mom. She was really 
distraught. She was like, James, if I have another stroke, I don't know who's going to take care of my kids. And so I started asking her questions about sleep apnea because I knew that about 90% of people who have a stroke have some type of sleep apnea. So I said, you know, do you feel refreshed in the morning? Do you snore at night? Do you wake up in the middle of the night? Do you have, you know, headaches in the morning? Yes, yes, yes to all the, all the sleep apnea questions. I was like, I honestly think you have sleep apnea. She got tested and she had one of the worst cases of sleep apnea the doctor ever had. And so my knowledge potentially saved this woman's life. And so that's why I do what I do because the research that I do can directly help people out. And, and honestly, there's not a better feeling. So selfishly, I almost do it to get that gratification. Well, that's, that's fantastic, James. I mean, I'm a huge fan of your work. It's uh, incredible stuff. You know, your book, The Salt Fix, um, should be sort of compulsory reading for every doctor, nutritionist, and, and person out there. It's, it's phenomenal, busting so many myths and so many great, uh, you know, tips and guidance for people. So thanks so much for taking the time out today. Where can people pick up the book and where can people keep up with all your fantastic work? Yeah, so people can get the book at thesaltfix.com, which is my website, and they can order it off of Amazon. It's in Barnes & Noble nationwide. They can order it off uh, offline for uh, in Walmart or Target. And P I'm pretty active on Twitter, at Dr. James Dinick, D-I-N-I-C, and I'm also on Facebook too. Fantastic. Well, we'll put all those links and a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. James, thanks so much for taking the time out today. Thanks to everyone else for listening in. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you on Facebook or Twitter at drbubs. Use the hashtag drbubspp. And of course, if you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave us a rating. Thanks for listening in, and we're going to see everyone next week. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.